If you have your Bibles, you can open to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, 14, 15. So we're going to be this week. If you have, if you not have a bulletin this morning, I really um, encourage you to grab one. I think it's going to help you follow along um, with today's sermon. Um, because of the nature of our passage, um, we're going to get just a little bit technical this morning. Um, and so if you can bear with me, I promise to not make it um, too technical. But it's important, I think, to understand the meaning of this passage. You have to understand somewhat of the structure. And so I want to give you that warning. And so I encourage you, if you have a bulletin, it's going to be helpful for you this morning. Before we begin, I think there's a little bit of a review that we should do. So if you remember last week, we started the book of First Peter. And one of the things we talked about is the book of First Peter is written to a group of people that are facing increasing social and political and financial persecution. And we said we can find a lot of similarities between how we as American Christians are beginning to face persecution to the life that these Christians that First Peter writes to were facing. And we said that Peter's solution, both to dealing with adversity and being faithful to God through it, Peter says the solution to that is viewing yourselves as in covenant with God. And a covenant being the idea that it's a contract on steroids, right? It has clear um, rewards, it has clear punishments, it has clear lines of responsibility, right? And this covenant between God and man is predicated upon the work of God. That's what we talked about last week. We talked about the idea that if we want to stay in this covenant, if we want to stay rooted in it, we must remember all that God has done. Both his historical actions, his saving actions, and his purposes, And we ended last week with Peter saying that out of this covenant comes two great commands for God's people. The first was for God's people to set their minds on the finished work of Christ. But then the second one was to be holy. And I left you on a cliffhanger by saying that we're going to look at how do you be holy? What does it look like to be holy? Because that's a pretty big command. And so this week we're going to look at how does Peter tell us to be holy? And now to understand that, there's again some things that we have to understand about this. And so today we're going to be looking at 1 Peter, starting in verse 15, going all the way through chapter 2, verse 12. Now if you have your Bibles in front of you and you have it opened up, you look at it and you may say, well, in my mind, those don't necessarily look like one continuous passage, right? They're, they're two different chapters. Um, most of you probably have headings um, that, that make it seem as if the beginning of chapter 2 um, is a different idea than maybe the end of chapter 1. Um, and this is one of those rare occasions where the um, chapters and the verses and the headings um, aren't that helpful for us, for us to understand what Peter's doing here. Right? The, most of the time, the chapters and the verses and the headings are great things for us, and they help us understand the Bible, they help us reference it, know where people are teaching from or preaching from. But this is one of those examples where I think we're actually hurt by the headings and the chapters here. Because I think if you read this passage without the headings, without the chapter number and verses— you would see verses 15 all the way through 2.12 as one section. And here's why. In this section, Peter is going to quote a lot of Psalms. He quotes Psalm 3, Psalm 28, right? He quotes a lot from the book of Psalms. And he does this both explicitly by basically just saying, like, here's the quotation, but there's also a lot of allusions to the book of Psalms. Now, if you don't know, Psalms are poetry. Um, they're, They're poetry written um, to be read in different circumstances. And so if you remember back to your English class where you read all those weird things called poems, um, and some of the characteristics of poems, right? It's very figurative language. But one of the big things, especially of the book of Psalms, is the idea of repetition. 
And so what you would have, right, is, is you would have an author, they would repeat an idea, but they would phrase it differently, right? So they would say, God is majestic. He created everything, the heavens above. And they might say, God is majestic. He created everything, the earth below, right? The same idea repeated, but phrased differently. And the point of these repetitions was to provide different illustrations, different visuals, and also to reinforce points by changing some of the wording. And so I think if we take that, all the references to Psalms that Peter's making— I think what we see is he's doing something really clever, and that is he is repeating himself. Not in words, the words aren't the same, but the structure is identical. And he repeats himself twice. So in verse 1 through, verse 115 through the end of chapter 1 is one section, and then chapter 2 verse 1 through 12 is a second section. And what I'm going to show you this morning is how these two sections in format, in structure, are completely identical. And then once we kind of walk through that, I show you that, and I show you what he's saying in there. I'm gonna, we're going to take some time diving into, okay, now why does he do that? So with that said, let's dive in. And so what you see is starting in verse 115 and 2.1 is the first thing Peter does in these sections is he tells his believers to put off sin. He tells them to put off sin. You see, each section begins with a command for the believer to distance themselves from evil. You see, the believer is to run from sinful behavior. In verse 14, he says, right, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, right? Do not be conformed. And then in verse chapter 2, verse 1, he says, put away all malice, like take off, right? Like undress yourself from all malice and evil, right? So both sections begin with these commands to distance yourself from sin from evil behavior, from malice, from from anything that is not in line with the covenant of God. But then from that, so he says, put off sin, and then he says, focus on reality. Focus on reality. And so each section points the reader to the truth, to a deeper commitment in God. And so how does he do this? So first, in in chapter 1, verse 15, he says, be holy. Why? As God is holy. Right? The reality is, God is holy. We sang about that this morning, right? No matter what we want to do, we can't change the reality of the holiness of God. And now it might be important here to take a second and make sure that we're all on the same page about the definition of holiness, to be holy. Holy, at its basic understanding in English, means to be set apart. To be different, right? To be, to be in, a, in a nature different than everything else. And so God's holiness is really the representation of everything that makes him God. There is nothing like God. There's no creature, there's no created thing that is in nature the same as God. And so God is by nature holy. And so when, when, when God calls us to be holy, he's saying to be set apart, right? But, so that kind of makes sense, right? We see, okay, the reality of God's holiness in chapter one. Um, but chapter two, um, you may be saying, I don't understand what Nick means by reality in chapter two. Look at verse two of chapter two. He says, like newborn infants long for the pure, and then I'm, I'm guessing that most of your translations there say spiritual milk. I'm kind of curious, does anybody have a translation there that does not say spiritual milk? Okay, I've got a couple. I've got a couple. Um, we're going to do some audience participation today. Um, anybody in the audience, what does your, somebody want to shout out what it says instead of spiritual milk? Sincere. Awesome. Um, sincere is actually probably um, a better translation of that word. Um, it's a rather obscure word that only appears one other time in the New Testament, right? Which makes it pretty unique. 
if we wanted to translate it most literally in English, um, the sentence would probably sound something like this. Long for the milk that is most in line with reality. That's, a, that's an odd sentence in English, right? You get, you get why they, trans, they translate it as sincere. And, and so the reason they translate it in spiritual and some translations is they're kind of interpreting it for you. Um, they're making some interpreted um, judgments that I don't think are in line with the text. Um, not to get too far into Greek, um, but the understanding of the Greek word literally means truth, sincere, sincereness. And so they think it means spiritual, but re- reality, what we see from the passage is that what, what Peter is trying to get them to understand is they are supposed to long for the reality of who they are in Christ. That's what he's asking them. They are supposed to long for the truth that, that they are in Christ, right? And, and what's interesting is if you look in verse 3, he continues the um, tasting metaphor, right? Long for spiritual milk if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, the reality of the Lord's goodness. And so he says, so he moves from put away falsehood, right? Put away deceit, put away evil things, and instead focus on reality. Focus on the reality of who God is and who he's made you in Christ. But then from there, right, he, he has to explain who God is, right? And so each section has a great statement about the nature of God, So in chapter 1, you get, as he who is called you is holy, be holy. And then in verse 16, you shall be holy for I am holy. God's statement of his holiness. But it doesn't stop there, right? He begins verse 17 with, and if you call on him him as a father who judges impartially, right? God's impartial judgment. So he continues it, right? He builds up the foundation on the nature of God. And then in verse 17, In chapter 2, verse 3, right, we kind of already alluded to this. He says, if you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Again, referencing the nature of God. And so he grounds each section on the ability and character of God. And then he moves, he explains how the nature and character of God leads to the nature and character of the believer. And so in in chapter 1, he says, right, In verse 17, he says to conduct yourselves with fears, knowing, in verse 18, that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. So in verse 18, what he wants us to understand about the nature of the believer is that the believer was at one time not a believer, right? That they had feudal ways, that they they were lost in sin, right? And, And that this was passed down generation to generation to them. That they didn't have to really try hard. It was given to them. They inherited it, right? They did nothing except exist, and their feudal ways were given to them because of their existence. But for the believer, they are no longer, right, in these feudal ways, but they have instead, right, been ransomed by God. They've been redeemed by Christ. And so their, their identity is no longer feudal in feudal ways. Their identity is now in Christ, Right? And then that leads to probably a passage that you are very familiar with if you've been around church for any length of time. In chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, right, where he says, You are being built up as a spiritual house into a royal priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. Right? The idea in chapter 2 is that the identity of the believer is a priest of the covenant of God. Right? Again, he's, he's referencing Old Testament. And if you remember back to last week where we talked about this covenant— 
right? The purpose of the priests in the Old Testament was to administer. They were the people that were responsible for making sure all the rites and rituals of the covenant came to pass for the people of Israel. And so what Peter is saying is, is the believer and the New Testament covenant are priests because they're the ones responsible for making sure that the, the rites and procedures and policies are carried out in the new covenant, right? It's built on Christ, but they, but they bring it to, to bear in the, the world. And so he says, right, that we are priests of God. And so, he, so after he kind of explains the nature of God, and the nature of the believer, he then focuses the attention on the work of Christ. So in chapter 1, right, he says in verse 20, and really kind of from 19 onward, he says that we are ransomed by what? By the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot, who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times, right? What has Christ done for the believer? Christ has died, and his blood becomes the ransom payment for the believer. And then in chapter 2, there's the really great understanding of Christ's nature, starting at the end of verse 5 and running running in verse 6 and verse 7 and verse 8. And he quotes Old Testament scripture, right? And he uses, he compares Christ to a foundation stone, a cornerstone, right? And he says, right, Christ is the cornerstone on which either the believer is built up or the unbeliever will stumble upon. But again, right, the work of Christ, Christ stands, right, as the means by which we enter in to the priesthood of the new covenant. That's what he says in the end of verse 5, right? We are are holy priests because we can offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so he explains the work of Christ. And in each section, he walks through that and he breaks that down. And then we get kind of our, one of our first major differences between the two. And that comes in the response to Christ. So each section, after he talks about the work of Christ, he shows a response to Christ. So in chapter 1, in verse 21, he shows the response of belief. Who through him, you, the believer, are believers. Right? So one of the responses to Christ is to believe in Christ. And so the chapter 1, the response that he gives is belief. The idea that, that, that when we see the work of Christ, we believe. And in chapter 2, he also gives a response to Christ, but it's the opposite response. So at the end of verse 8, he talks. He says, that, he said in verse 7, he's talking about those that do not believe. They stumble to disobey the word as they were destined to do. What he's saying is, is one of the options is to believe. The other option is to disobey or do not believe the work of Christ. Those are the only two options, but each one, right? So after he talks about the work of Christ, he then says that this is a response to Christ. And so after he kind of lays all this out, he then reinforces the identity. In each section, he reinforces the identity of the believer. So what you have in verse 22, right? In verse 21, we're believers, but in verse 22 of chapter 1, we have purified souls, right? The believer's identity is purified because of the work of Christ. And then in chapter 2, the second iteration, he spends verses 9 through 10 reinforcing that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, right? That we were called out of darkness, that we once were not a people, but we are now people, right? He reinforces the identity. And then finally... At the end of each section, 
he gives the commands. After doing all of that, he gives the commands, right? In chapter 1, it's in verse 22, and it's to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And then in chapter 2, it is to abstain from the passions of the flesh and to keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. He does a lot of talking to give very short and very concise commands. And so what you see when you walk through all of that is you see identical structure, right? The words are different, but the structure underlying each one is the same, right? So he starts, again, he starts with telling the believer to put off something, right? To put off sin, and the replacement for that sinful behavior comes at the end of the passage, right? With the commands. But the middle section is kind of a flowing thought from the reality of who we are in Christ based on God's identity, our identity in the work of Christ, And then a reinforcement of the identity to show how we then as believers live out the commands of God. And so he sandwiches what we are not to do, right, is is the bread on one side with the the other, the commands, what we are to do, the other bread. In the middle, the meat of what he's saying is, is the nature of God. And so with all this, the question becomes, okay, why is Peter doing this? Right, if there really is this identical structure between the two passages, Right? We should understand that, he, that Peter is telling us these two passages are linked in some way. Right? There's got to be a connection between these two passages. Peter's going to basically use the same exact structure in both ones. Why? Like, what's the purposes for that? I think what we see from this is there's really four kind of main purposes. There's four reasons that Peter's doing this. That Peter is repeating himself in structure, but not in words. The first, I think, is... is is maybe the most simple because I said there was really one big difference in thought between the first repetition and the second. And that was in the first repetition, the response to Christ is that of obedience. And in the second, the response is that of disobedience. And so what I think Peter really wants us to get between these two passages is that the work of Christ will always produce a result. The work of Christ will always produce a result. And that result will either be that we believe in what Christ has done and we put our hope and trust and faith in Christ. And when we do that, we will be obedient. Or we will look at the work of Christ and we will not trust him to save us. And that will lead to disobedience. Right? Anytime you see repetition in the Bible, you always need to ask yourself what's the same, but you also want to ask yourself what's different. Because a lot of times in highlighting what's different, we see what this, the, the, the author is trying to get us to understand. And Peter clearly wants us to understand that if we are part of this new covenant, if we belong to Christ, then we will be obedient. There is not a biblical category for disobedient believers. Let me make that clear. There is not a biblical category for a believer who is disobedient. Now, hear clearly what I'm saying. I'm not saying that a believer will not sin, right? We know that's not true because there's way too much in the Bible of the apostles calling believers to repent and turn from, turn from sin to Christ, right? Why would they write that unless there were believers sinning? Well, what I do mean is that a believer sees their sin as disobedience and repents of it and turns towards Christ, right? The unbeliever sees their sin and they delight in it, right? They live a lifestyle that at its core is disobedient to the very idea of reality, 
That's what Peter's saying here. Is the, the lifestyle of a believer is in complete con- contrast to the reality of God and creation. And so Peter's repeating himself here. He's, he's basically using the same structure in both these both these passages, because he wants us to understand the difference between a lifestyle that is obedient to God and a lifestyle that is disobedient to God. And what's really interesting about this is he he says the difference in these two lifestyles is not your effort. Your effort is not what will make you obedient or disobedient. Your discipline, your work, your Ability to try hard, you're surrounding yourself with good people, is not what will make you obedient or disobedient. According to Peter, what will make you obedient or disobedient is your identity. You see, Peter makes clear the identity of a believer is found in obedience because, right, they have Christ in, they're saved by Christ, and so they are now obedient. Their nature has changed. The unbeliever can never be obedient because they have a nature that is disobedient. And so what he's saying is, is it's out of our identity that our actions flow. Right? I use this silly example with the kids, but it helps us understand right? That, that we know that a fish cannot fly. Right? I'm sure there's maybe some weird fish out there that flies, but most fish do not fly. The internet makes using examples really hard because you probably can find an exception to the example, right? But you understand that fish cannot fly. And if I ask you how you know that fish cannot fly, you're going to say, because of the nature of the fish, right? A fish, by definition, lives in water and does not fly, right? And if I ask you how do you know that birds fly, except for penguins, they're weird, right? We know that birds fly because it's in the nature of a bird, right? And so we see, right, by the nature of things, we can expect certain behaviors, And so what Peter is trying to get the believer to understand is that if they want to be obedient to God, they need a nature that allows them to be obedient. And the only thing that allows you to have a nature that's obedient to God is an identity that comes and is found in the completed work of Jesus Christ. If you put your identity in anything else, you will be disobedient. And you will produce behavior that is disobedient. And so our identity leads to our actions. And the only thing that can change our identity from disobedience to obedience is Jesus Christ. So the first reason is to highlight the difference between obedience and disobedience. But the second reason, the second reason I think he does this, is he knows that one of the traps that we can fall into is is thinking that God is only concerned with our holiness when it comes to our salvation. But Peter wants us to understand that God is concerned with our holiness when it comes to our sanctification. Here's what I mean by this. Right? Salvation. We understand, right? God saves us, right? Christ saves us because we were not holy, and to enter the presence of God, we had to be holy. Right? So God is concerned with our holiness and salvation because he makes that which was not holy to become holy. But what Peter is saying, what he wants them to understand, is that God is concerned not just that we are positionally holy, that we are positionally right before God, but in practicality, in our living, we would be holy. And so he tells them that in the sanctification, there be sanctification just a fancy way of saying becoming more obedient to God. 
that we would be more holy. How do I know this? Well, in the first passage, right, in chapter 1, the focus is primarily on the work of salvation, right? Right, he's talking, right, that, that we are saved by Christ. We are ransomed by Christ. That Christ has done this action. We are presented holy and blameless through Christ. The focus is all on salvation, and then in chapter 2, right, in the second iteration, the salvation, the salvation is replaced with the sanctification, right? He says that you may grow up, right? You may long for this milk in accordance with reality, right? The focus is on the living out of the believer, right? The sacrifices they offer, the, 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 the identity they flow. And so the first part focuses on salvation, and how God has made us holy in that, and that leads to right behavior. But then the second part is that God is progressively making us holy in our sanctification. And I think, in reality, I think actually as American Christians, this, this is where we struggle a lot. And if I can be more honest, I think this is where we as Baptists um, maybe fail compared to our other brothers and sisters in denominations. We as Baptists like to prioritize salvation. And, and rightly so preaching the gospel, bringing people to salvation, we often do a really horrible job discipling. And I think part of that is because we believe that God is holy enough and mighty enough and powerful enough and loving enough and just enough to save us, but we often don't think he's loving and kind and powerful enough to sanctify us. We think that God is concerned with my salvation but he's not concerned with my sanctification. And what Peter is trying to get these believers to understand, what he's saying the only thing that's going to isolate them, right, that's going to help them through these persecutions is they realize that God didn't just care about them and love them enough to save them. He cared about them and loved them enough to give them trials and persecution so they would look more like Christ. And so he uses these mere structures to show that. Right, to show that God's plan for the believer doesn't end when they are saved. It continues until Christ returns, and then it continues beyond that. God's plan for the believer does not stop upon their salvation. That is the beginning of God's plan for them. You see, the goodness of God doesn't just save people. The goodness of God grows the believer into maturity in Christ. And so if we want to live as covenant people, as people in covenant with God, then we have to see him as good enough and strong enough and loving enough, not just to save us, but to give us trials and adversity to mature us. And so I think that's why, the second reason why he repeats himself. But I think there's a third reason he repeats himself. And that third reason that he repeats himself is I think that he knows that one of the things that can happen, both in Christian community in general, but also Christian community that's facing persecution, is it can become isolated, individually isolated. And so he wants the readers, he wants the believers to move from a self-focused understanding of the covenant to a understanding that they are in a covenant community. Here's what I mean by this. If you look at the first part, there is a sense of which, especially when we talk about salvation, an individualized nature, right? We understand that salvation is applied on an individual basis, right? God saved me. God saved you. God saved each one of us separately, right? Obviously, there's the one work of Christ, but we are each saved individually in our understanding of that. 
But what's amazing is the Bible teaches, and I think this passage teaches us, that we move from an individual salvation to a community of believers, a covenantal community. Right? Because the first passage is all about salvation, right? It's all individual. God has saved you. You are saved by God, right? You've been, you have been ransomed from the blood. It's individual. But then in passage two, there is no longer a you. There is a group of people, right? There is a holy race, a holy nation. The scope has expanded, right? In verse nine, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people, right? Not a person, a people for his own possession, right? The idea, the idea is that he moves them from a self-focused understanding of what God is doing to a community understanding of what God is doing. When we get to the end of Peter and we talk about living in covenant, the necessity of a church community is going to be enforced, right? Peter does not, thinks it's completely opposite of a Christian's nature to not be in community with other believers. And what Peter's trying to get them to understand by, by repeating himself here is that we have to understand that the covenant we are in with God is a covenant that we share with other believers. And so we interact and we encourage other believers in this covenant. And what's really interesting is if you go back and you look at all the things that Peter says to put off or to do away with, they're all social sins. Right? He says, put away deceit. I mean, we all know we're pretty good at lying to ourselves, but in reality, lying is a sin practiced with other people. Right? He says, put off hypocrisy. Right? Hypocrisy is a sin expressed in relation to other people. Saying to other people, this is what you should do when not holding yourself to that same standard. Right? Envy. You cannot envy unless you're around other people right? Slander. Slander is the sin of besmirching, taking down somebody else's reputation for your benefit, right? These are all relational sins. And what Peter is really trying to get the believers to understand is that when we don't live in a covenant with God, we will ultimately destroy community. The only thing that builds true community is a group of people in covenant with God, Every other community will ultimately dissolve. The only community that will last for all eternity are the believers of God in covenant with him. If you don't believe me, go read the book of Revelation. It makes that pretty clear. That's the only community that lasts for all eternity. He doesn't call them priests. He calls them a priesthood. What does he, why does that matter? Because in the Old Testament, there, were not, there was not one priest. Yes, there was a high priest who led, but there were priests. There were multiple priests that carried out the sacrifices, which you see Peter talking about here, right? Offering our lives as a spiritual sacrifice. But the reality is, is Peter is telling us that we are called together to carry out these sacrifices, right? We are a priesthood that offers sacrifice. Not priests individually that offer sacrifices, but together we offer ourselves together as sacrifices to God. But one last detail that shows us that, that Peter wants us to think in terms of community. Look at verse 9. Peter, through the Holy Spirit, tells us very clearly that the reason that you are saved is to proclaim salvation to other people. 
You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were saved so that other people might be saved. God saved you so that a lost and dying world may hear the gospel. Peter expects you, the believer, to be sharing with other people the truth and those people believing and repenting and entering into the covenant community along with you. In fact, in Peter's worldview, there is no such thing as a Christian that would not share the gospel, that is not continually proclaiming the amazingness of the God that saved them. Right, The priests were the ones who carried out all the things necessary in the covenant of God. Their lives were lived in subject to the covenant. Who they could marry, what they could eat, where they could live, what they could wear, was all dictated by the terms of the covenant between the nation of Israel and God. Peter expects the same thing of the believers. Who we marry, what we do, what we eat, where we live, what we... Watch, everything is dictated by the covenant we have with God. In fact, it should be so much dictated that there's nothing we can do but proclaim to the people around us that our God saves. He wants them to move away from thinking of their relationship with God as primarily something that is just between them and God, but primarily as a work which God is making them a part of in a community of believers. That's the third thing. He's moving us from self-focused understanding to an understanding of a covenantal community. And the last one is really just for people like me. You see, I think part of the reason Peter's repeating himself is sometimes we're a little bit thick-headed. Sometimes we just need things repeated. Right? Sometimes we just don't get it the first time. And so I think Peter understands that in trials and temptations and hardships, sometimes we just need things over and over and over and over again. And here's what he wants them to understand. Here's what he wants them to get. He needs them to live differently. He needs a moral change to happen. Their actions to be differently. And he understands that our natural temptation is to think that we can make ourselves change our behavior. That we can make moral change happen. And what Peter knows, and what the Bible teaches, and what these believers have to come to understand, that the only thing that can lead to moral change is a life that trusts completely in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. It's really easy to find preaching on moral change. In fact, I'll make a bold claim this morning, don't prove me wrong, please, that in the majority of churches in America today, if you were to walk in them, your odds of hearing preaching on moral change would drastically outweigh your odds of hearing preaching on the completed work of Jesus Christ. And the sad truth is, the biblical reality is the only thing that will ever change your morals, your behaviors, and your actions is not 
preaching on changing your behaviors, actions, and morals, but preaching on the completed work of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible teaches that preaching on moral change actually leads to all the behaviors that Peter said to put off. Because the reality is, what happens when you preach moral change, when I tell you to change your behavior and you try in your own power to change your behavior, you will fail. And when you fail, you think you're pretty awesome, and so you can't put the fault for your failing on you, and so you put it on everyone else but you. It's those people that are different than me. It's my neighbor who's not so nice. It's my husband who doesn't love me like he should. It's my, it's my wife that doesn't care for me like she, she should. Or whatever we do, we find something else to place the blame. Because we can't put it on ourselves, because we put it on ourselves, then we'd have to admit that we're sinful. And so we put it on everybody else and everything else but us. Well, it's that pastor. He's just not good enough. He just doesn't preach good enough. He just doesn't help me enough. Right? It's my Sunday school teacher. She just doesn't follow up with me enough. Whatever it would be, we find somewhere else to place the blame. And so we find ourselves falling into the trap of deceit and slander and envy, right? And covetousness and everything else that Peter says to put off. But the reality is, is when we look to Christ first and foremost, Christ changes us. And then all those things that we're to put off fall away because we see, yes, I am sinful. Why would I covet what somebody else has? Because God is sovereign. He can give me whatever I need, right? Why would I lie about somebody when I serve a God who is truth, right? Why would I need to put somebody else down when I know in reality that I am the worst person to have ever lived? I am a sinner just like them. What do I gain by putting them down? And so what we see, what Peter is trying to get us to understand, he wants us to understand it so bad he has to repeat it twice is that if we really want to be holy, if we really want to live as God has commanded us to live, the solution is not to try harder. The solution is not to, you know, buckle down and and give it the good old college try. The solution is to work, not in your own power, but in the power of Christ by looking first and foremost and setting your minds on the completed work of Jesus Christ. So you might be here this morning and you might be realizing if the standard is to be holy, I have utterly failed that standard. And you might for the first time be realizing that, you know what, I am a sinner. That the standard that God requires, I have failed. I have good news for you this morning. You have failed, but Jesus didn't. Trust in Jesus this morning. Turn from your sins. Repent and trust in Jesus. And maybe you're sitting here and saying, I have trusted in Jesus. But I know that my sanctification is not complete. I know I'm not completely obedient to Christ. Well, I have good news for you too. You're right, you're not. Because Christ has not returned. But this morning, you can become more obedient. Look to Christ. And so as the band comes, as we come to enter into a time of invitation, I think we'd all admit that we all want moral change. We all want to be better people. We all want to be more obedient to God. If the option is disobedience or obedience, we'd all rather be found obedient. And if that's the case for you this morning, my question is, will you look to Christ? Will you not look to yourself, your own deeds, your own works, but will you instead turn from yourself and look 
to Christ. As the words of these, this song is going to put it, will you surrender all this morning? All of your life, all of your goods, everything you have, will you surrender it to Christ this morning and let him change you? Let his work change you. Let the identity that he creates in you be where your actions flow out of. Let us respond to God's word by singing together. Let's stand together as we sing.